1: You are listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is my interview with the writer and director for All Quiet on the Western Front, Edward Berger. Very nice to meet you too, Edward. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today about All Quiet on the Western Front, which is now currently playing in select theaters uh, across New York and L.A. and is going to be rolling out to Netflix pretty soon. I want to first start off by asking, there have been lots of war films all throughout cinematic history. I almost feel like we've gotten to a point with the war genre where a lot of people are feeling like almost every story has been told in a stylistic way that has been done before. Um, So this movie itself is based on uh, the book that was uh, adapted into a 1930 Best Picture winner, a television series, and now your version here as well. So talk to me first about wanting to tackle a story that's been told before and what unique perspective you wanted to tell it from?
2: Um, it's basically my perspective, my very personal perspective, and that's hopefully a different one. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you how it started. So uh, my producer Malte Malta called me two years ago and said, do you think this is a good idea, good idea if I could get the rights, would you want to do it? And I immediately thought, what a brilliant idea. I felt it had been sitting there for almost 100 years, a German book never been made into a German movie, very big German book. And yes, an American movie, but it was an American movie. It was never mm-hmm. made in German by a German filmmaker. And obviously we have a, you know a unique perspective in history is that Germany is the only country in the last century that succumbed to its destructive impulses and brought two horrible wars into the world. And you grow up with a, a, diff, a kind of a, a sense of that, a sense of, of of history and the sense of responsibility, and the, most of the films that we get to watch in this genre that you mentioned, you know, the the war genre, are American or British films because for two reasons. First of all, financial, you know, the, usually the budgets are higher because we have English speaking stars and and those you know sell around the world, and so so. So that's, that's a, an obvious reason or a very pragmatic reason. Um, and war films are usually... And the per, period war films and war films in general are you know, just expensive. So you need, you need a certain amount of money to make them well. But the, um, the main reason was that when I watch American or British war films, I've, you know, I really enjoy them. I'm immensely in awe of how they're made. Um, but I always feel... You know, it, it, I always feel really the differences of perspectives. and the perspective is that, as an American or bred, you can tell America was basically roped into a war against their will. British were attacked, they had to defend themselves. America liberated Europe from fascism. Those stories, those that type of history generates uh, you know hero stories, hero journeys. you know people come home, they're celebrated, they're embraced, they're allowed to heal, they, they come home with a sense of pride of what they did they did it for a purpose for something good mm-hmm. when you grow up in germany there's no sense of that there's only you know shame guilt horror terror and and um and the sense of responsibility for for what happened and so therefore hopefully you know that i mean with me it influences every creative decision that i make on a film like that on any film for that matter but especially on a war film and hopefully in the end that feels like a very different war film from the american or british war films that we usually see uh, you know not better or anything just a different perspective and mm-hmm. i felt that's a fresh perspective uh, that that uh, could interest people in other countries that could where people could say, oh, you know, I haven't seen this version, this perspective before, this type of story. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I felt a deep urge to share that story.
1: So you got the personal perspective, and you've got, obviously, the financing to pull it all together. I, I'm curious to know, because I saw he was a producer on the film, how much did Daniel Brühl's international appeal help with getting this film made?
2: Uh, interestingly enough, the film, I mean, did not need any actor, you know oh. the, the because the movie title is so big, yeah, um, or the the book title is so big that Netflix or either financiers for that matter, uh, and but we in the end we decided that Netflix was our best partner, our most uh, creative partner, our most supportive partner, um, and we went with them. Um, that um, you know they were all interested to to bring this book to the screen. And Daniel was a plus, but it wasn't a necessity.
1: Well, that's great, because, you know, obviously what you were saying before in terms of how these films typically tend to get made nowadays, uh, it's great to see that, you know, Netflix is recognizing um, talent and content. Uh, But I think the thing that is most important is understanding, yes, it's an important book. Yes, you've got the perspective. And yes, you've got uh, the financial backing to make it. And it's a really expansive adaptation that you've created here. But... I do uh, sometimes wonder, because uh, I experienced this uh, even a couple years ago when 1917 came out about World War I, lots of people were asking, well, why does this matter today? Why should I care about what happened in, back in World War I and what does that have anything to do with today? And as I said before, there's been so many countless war films. So what would you say is the importance of All Quiet on the Western Front in needing to tell this story uh, again for a modern audience?
2: Great question. And again, we had a very strong reason for making every time, by the way, I make a film, I really think hard on, is this a, a, the right film to make? Should I make something else? Should I make nothing at all? Yeah. <laughs> so you really need that reason. Why are we making it? and Why are we making it now? And for who are we making it? Who's going to be interested in the story? Yeah. And so about two and a half years ago, Obviously there was no war in the Ukraine. There wasn't even a threat of a war in the Ukraine. Now uh, unfortunately we have a you know timely relevance to our film because a war just happens in you know less than thousand kilometers away from where I live, you know, eight hundred kilometers or so away. So it's really around the corner. Six for American audiences, five hundred miles, you know. So um it's really around the corner. And um so it wasn't back then, but there was a feeling of Malta and I, my producer and I looked at each other and said, this film is really, really want to make it now because, you know, you had Trump in America or on his way out, or he was just gone, I forgot. You had Brexit. Mm-hmm. You have in Europe, you have right-wing neo-fascist parties being elected into government. Like in Italy now, in Sweden now, and two and a half years ago, uh, you know, we already had uh, the government in Hungary, which is basically a xenophobic, you know, right-wing government, uh, um, and you have that in many, many countries. In Poland, uh, even in Germany, uh, there was a rise in the part in the right-wing party, and that concerns me, and that worries me. And suddenly, politicians, demagogues, suddenly um, question institutions that guaranteed us peace, that brought us peace uh, for 70 years in Europe. You know, it's the longest uh, history, uh, period of, of peace in, in history in Europe. And they questioned institutions like the European Union, like, uh, you know, other institutions that bring countries together. And that was suddenly being questioned by these right-wing politicians, basically, right-wing demagogues. And it felt like the right time to say, you know, this this was exactly the kind of language that people used 100 years ago uh, to, like, and this is where, you know, hyper-nationalism and increased sense of patriotism can lead. And this is where it led 100 years ago. And so it felt just like resonant. It felt like we are repeating our history. And uh, it led to that, especially in Germany, you know, nationalists used Use this kind of language to rile yeah. up the rile up the people, rile up the you know get the voters behind them. And I noticed this type of language riding the tube uh, on the way to work. You know, I go to I go in the, in the tube, and suddenly there's more aggression. There's more you know when people speak like that on the news, people we're supposed to look up to, people on the street, we all repeat it. You know, we yeah. suddenly think it's fine. And so that type of language just creeps into that type of aggression creeps into our daily lives and it just felt important to say this is where it led to 100 years ago and we also start with a teacher basically giving a big speech sending these kids off to awards telling them this kids this is going to be great you're going to come back heroes we're all going to celebrate you and they all think wow fantastic let's go Mm -hmm. and that's basically the same thing yeah yeah
1: So it's interesting because while the film is guided by this, uh, the film is not overtly political. Uh, instead, it's actually uh, focusing more on the visceral. And it's a very overwhelming, powerful cinematic experience on a technical level, what you've accomplished here. Yes, you have bureaucrats deciding the fate of Germany with this armistice that, uh, and this, this ceasefire that happens towards the end of the film. But the character that we're following, Paul... He is devoid of any kind of political ideology. He's simply just a young 17-year-old kid, a human being that is caught up in the worst imaginable horror uh, of his life, completely unprepared for what awaits him and his friends who have, like like you said, like blindfully because of this nationalism enlisted and they're, they're weighing over their heads because of it. I'm curious to know from your own point of view, did you know what you signed up for when you undertook this project? Because it is a Herculean task, from production design, to sound work, to makeup. I mean, this is a movie that's firing on all cylinders, no pun intended, on a craft level.
2: Oh, that's, I mean, that's what you, that's wonderful that you see it that way. I always like to choose projects where I think it's going to be a massive challenge, and I don't know how to do them. I did not know how to do that. I've never done a battle scene before, let alone... I, hadn't, I don't think I'd ever filmed a single explosion before, wow. before before this film. So I don't know how to do these things, but I'm drawn to stories where I think I don't know how to do that, and I want to find out how to do them. I want to learn how to do them. And so no, we didn't know that was a Herculean task, but it pretty soon became clear, and then, you know, you just get the best team available, you just get the best team in the world to to do it with. And then you do it bit by bit, shot by shot, actually. And there were some days that I drove to set with my cinematographer. We'd literally locked ourselves in a room for three months in Berlin during lockdown and did, um, did the storyboards. And when we came out of the, the, those three months, we just had the film drawn in little images, especially those big battle scenes. And those battle scenes, we. We basically shot piece by piece, shot by shot. We sort of crossed them off, said, did that, done, let's move on. And that was the only way to keep sanity in a way because it was otherwise felt too big and too complicated. And every shot was basically undoable, ungettable. And sometimes I thought on the way to work in the in the van in the morning, I, I really felt the weight of it but then luckily i had him to pull me up and when he was down i pulled him up so that way we got through it in the end
1: yeah storyboarding something like this i think is incredibly crucial just from a planning and you know the, the, the logistics alone to coordinate some of this is uh mind-boggling i think uh but i'm curious to know in either the screenwriting phase the shooting phase storyboarding editing Where do you find particularly where to find those moments where the story will get more quiet? Because you can't have it be an onslaught of noise, brutality, and carnage the whole way through. So, is that a process that you're continually discovering, or do you know that early on?
2: Uh, Kind of during writing, you Mm -hmm. feel it. It's the rhythm that you feel that you kind of think. I mean, you read it and you go, "Like God, this scene, this loud scene goes on for ten minutes already. I really need, I really need to take a breather." and just take a step back and give us and the audience the respite, the moment of peace where we also, the movie was very much about contrasts, quiet, and loud, and hunger, and, you know, uh, luxury and, uh, you know, upstairs, downstairs, mud, and you know, luxury and all those, all those, you know, uh, contradictions.
1: I also got that from the environments too beautiful exactly. shots of the landscape and it's like pure beauty but then other shots of the landscape where it's just completely leveled and destroyed the other
2: destruction of it yeah mm-hmm. and so it felt it felt um you know you feel it during the writing and then if you didn't the latest when you feel it when i felt it for this movie at least was uh, in the storyboarding where you thought okay let's you know let's step take a step back and And shot listing, you know, we didn't, we we did a lot of shot lists too. And then you feel like when you really start seeing the film shot by shot, then when that's when you know that you need breaks as well.
1: So a lot of uh, war films that I've seen, uh, you know, sometimes will vary in terms of their brutality. Some will present a more glossy version, maybe trying to get a PG-13 rating. Others will go full tilt into just absolute realism. I, of course, am reminded of scenes like the Omaha Beach sequence and seeing Private Ryan or something uh, more psychological, like Come and See. And I think your film really puts the viewer in that perspective of being in the trenches. And at times, to me, I I said to a friend of mine when I saw it at Toronto, I walked out and I was like, that was the scariest movie I've seen this year, like uh, compared to any other horror movie. Uh, So... I'm curious to know, like, understanding film history and how other people have crafted their war films. uh, What were you trying to uh, depict in the way that you presented these battle scenes? What emotions did you want to elicit?
2: I first of all wanted the audience to really feel in Paul Boimer's our main character's shoes, Mm -hmm. to really have the feeling that they're running across the battlefield, they're ducking behind a tree trunk with him. You know, we're putting them in their shoes. So a lot of times I but we also wanted to vary uh, the, the stylistic the choices in the battle scenes. We didn't just want long shots or one takes or something. We said, all right, the beginning are very long shots. We feel like we're really thrown into this world. But then later on, when it becomes, everything becomes more fractured, disorienting, we do a lot more cuts, uh, a lot more precise cuts, To, But the, the one thing that always guided the positioning of the camera was Paul Boehmer's interstate, mm-hmm. uh, what he felt we wanted the audience to feel. And basically the, the camera was almost like his stomach, his gut. Mm. So uh, where is his gut going? And where should the camera be? Is it you know, an oppressive angle on his face? Or is it a very, even if we don't see him, you know, mm-hmm. is it a very wide shot, him lost in this world or the audience lost in this carnage? Yeah. Uh, so... That was sometimes a motivation too for the camera to go wide and away from them. Yeah. Yes. If you ask me, and maybe this gives a good impression of what I was trying to achieve. If you ask me, maybe three movies would influence this film. Or I'm I'm naming three because it's not a single one. Sure. I would say a movie that I really admire for its, its perspective is Laszlo um, Nemes uh, film. Um, son of soul oh yeah where the Mm -hmm. camera is really behind i mean it's always behind the shoulder and it's very close and it's basically not seeing his face you know it's just always behind him yeah and once in a while he turns towards the camera but it's really only behind him and and that is really puts the audience into this character's perspective so i i think that was a wonderful film a very radical in its perspective and i wanted to you know, create that feeling without copying the style, right? You know? So, if, 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 and also it wouldn't be right for this film. This film is much more, it's not as intimate. It's much more, uh, it's much broader or wider, I guess, in its perspective. So it wouldn't fit. Also, it's been done before. So why would I do it? Um, so, So, but that's a film, at least that feeling is great. And how can it create a feeling like that in certain scenes? Uh, that is particular for a movie, for this movie. Another filmmaker in general, I think, that I think has a big influence on me, at least, is Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. I always think his films are, you, you know, the camera feels like a razor-sharp razor sharp eraser, basically. It's like, it's, it's really um, eviscerating and analytical and very, very precise and very sharp, so... And thus gives me a sense of uncomfortability too, yeah. when it's supposed to be that. So that's part of it. And then, just in general, because of, I mean, I love that, I've loved that film forever. Apocalypse Now, I would oh. say, is a, is, is a film where I think, because, because I, the, the great thing about that film is, it doesn't really, I don't know if Coppola would agree with this, but it, to me, I don't really, try, I'm not trying to look for the story. Just doesn't tell a classical traditional story. it more tries to capture the essence of war mm-hmm. uh, rather than give me a simple A to B story yeah. so or a that story so I you know maybe that answers your question a little bit in a very totally. long-winded way like influences choices and that's it so
1: I, I do want to talk about those moments where paul uh, there there is no sides, if you will. He has moments where whether he's just stabbed somebody and all of a sudden, like in that moment of recognition, he realizes this is a a human being, regardless of what side we're on right now. I may be responsible, but I need to do something to help this poor person. Uh, And we also see, I think, that reflected a couple of times throughout where the character of Paul is just seeing the humanity through all of this carnage. And it does bring about uh, something that we've seen time and time again, which is, yes, war is hell, but also for the people on the ground, at a certain point, it's numbing, and you start to question, why are we even here? Why are we even doing this in the first place? So uh, can you just talk a little bit about the morality of those scenes? Uh, Because I do think they're extremely fascinating.
2: Maybe I take one scene. You know, There's one scene that was very important to me, where Paul gets locked into a crater with a Frenchman and goes on, I think for 10 minutes or so, you know, Uh, it's it's a very long scene, just two people in a mud hole and Paul stabs him and then realizes, witnesses the slow death of this person. And for Mm -hmm. me, that scene sort of encapsulates the entire book and the entire movie in a way, because the story is very much about kids, that are influenced by these demagogues uh, to to go to war, and um, and then in the and they go enthusiastically, thinking you know Germany had won by the way three wars in the nineteenth century very quickly. Mm-hmm. So the fathers of these people, these soldiers, these kids that went to war, were heroes in a way. You know, they were sort of came back and were celebrated, and and this hubris kind of. It instilled itself in the, in, the, in the mind of the people. And these kids wanted to be like their fathers. You know? And so they went out. And on top of it, they didn't have news. You know? They didn't have uh, uh, TVs. You know? They didn't see how horrible it was, what yeah. was. They believed what the newspapers told them. Oh, we won. Um, it's easy. You, know, you just walk to Paris and then it's yours. Kind of, you know, We're much stronger than them. All this idiocy. And they just believed it and they went on. And so in the trench, in that trench, especially in that mud hole, basically Paul loses his innocence and becomes and realizes that you know he's a frail, flawed human being. And the Frenchman is a frail, flawed human being. We're all flawed, we're all the same. And the, the horror of it though is that he walks out, so he's killed him, and the horror of it is he kind of forgets about it again, you know, he becomes a killing machine. And that's the that's the story that these young kids, we called it, you know, in America, too, it was the lost generation. right? They lost their soul in this war and they uh, they lost everything that made them human. And so they um, they became these machines that that uh, that in a way just had to put up a big wall around their emotions in order not to die. But they and the the opening line of the Remark's book is basically I can not say it verbatim, but the sense of it is uh, even if they, even if we didn't lose our lives, you know, we lost we lost um, you, you know we became dead inside basically. You know? um, even, or even if the grenades didn't kill us, they killed our souls. You know? Yeah, and that's basically what happens to these kids, and that's kind of the morality of, of, of their life. Right? Yeah. I don't and know. Did that, that answer it slightly?
1: Yeah, totally. And death does, I think, find unexpected ways to creep its way into Paul's fellow soldiers, uh, brothers in arms, if you will. I, I was very surprised by how the way that some of these characters would meet their untimely end uh, was not via a way that one would expect uh but it always just seemed like until the war was over until there was an actual yes it's officially done no matter where they are at any point in time battlefield or no battlefield death can still find them at any point i was wondering if you could just like talk about uh the way that the movie casts that shadow that looming dark shadow over all these characters
0: okay round two name something that's not boring laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary Forward, by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
2: now even characters that are not in the war i'm not Going to give it away now, but even that are in the war, that are maybe even younger kids, they get, you know, the the war, the war, the horrors that happened during the war, sort of permeates, infiltrates their souls, their the way they behave, so that they all they can think about is revenge and killing and all these evil thoughts come into that
1: eventually influenced World War Two.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, oh, that's another part of, uh, 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 I can talk about that in a little bit about Daniel Brühl's role, um, how that, why that is in the film, mm-hmm. but um, it felt like uh, we wanted to create an atmosphere that death can come at, at any corner, you know, and especially in the unexpected, but we didn't want the audience to feel secure. Yeah. You know, whenever, whenever you go around the corner, you think, oh, God, I hope not one of us is going to die again. You know, so that's the kind of feeling, because that's how it is, I assume.
1: I would assume, too.
2: I was fortunately fortunate enough to never be in a war. But as I said, I grew up with the heritage of it and, and with the constant feeling of guilt and responsibility about it, that it felt like a very very important film for me to make to get it out of my system and to be honest it's not out of my system it'll always be in my system so
1: would you say that the score for the film is to aid in that and that sense of um unexpectedness and unease because this is unlike any score I've ever heard in any other war film before and there were times where it genuinely startled me and almost like in a jump scare way it just kind of kept me as you said like on edge throughout.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I worked with Volker, the composer, many times. And I said to him on oh, three things from the score. First of all, something that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And secondly, or never heard before, you know, how, how sometimes you watch a movie, it just elevates it to a different level. And, and very often that's the music too, where you feel like, oh, oh, it's just different than other movies. You know? So that was important to me the second was uh, i wanted to in a way destroy the um, images and not romanticize them that also comes from my heritage you know mm-hmm. i don't want to glorify anything i don't want to make heroes out of these kids i don't want to it's not not beautify not not emotionalize and put like strings over it when people are supposed to cry so i wanted to i told them let's destroy the images yeah let's go against the images let's That's, yeah, uh, undermine them in an unexpected way. And the third one was the music's supposed to just score what Paul feels, like what, what he is inside, like his stomach. Again, the music is his stomach, you know, what he feels in his stomach. And not what we are supposed to feel, but, you know, the audience, you know, okay, I'm trying to gear them towards, you know, this is an emotional scene and this is why we're putting on this type of music we try to steer away from that and just sort of score what is yeah what Paul feels in his stomach that was the main that was the main direct
1: so so the bass dropping is the feeling of of Paul's stomach dropping
2: basically <laughs> yeah absolutely I and by that. the way this was a very old instrument that we did it on mm-hmm. uh, it sounds quite electronic but it's actually completely analog it's 100 years old or wow. over 100 years old so it is from the time Volker inherited it from his grandmother and he refurbished it, and now it's in pristine condition. And it's a harmonium. And so you, it's like a piano, but you have to pump air into, into the instrument. And so it's very analog. And underneath, basically the score is three three chords or three tones, three mm-hmm. notes only. Da, da, da. That's the score. The entire movie. Yeah. Keep repeating it over and over again. And underneath, because he pumps air into it, you hear these... <laughs> these very mechanical sounds that I think, you know, breathe some life into this instrument. And then we just put it through a big distortion kind of amp, but otherwise it's, it's a very simple, it's, it's, it's our harmonium. It's an old instrument.
1: That's wild. I did not know that. That's really, really cool. Because I think this will be a good note to close on. Uh, You said you wanted to mention something about Daniel Brühl's scenes in the movie.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, Daniel Brühl plays a politician called um, Matthias Erzberger, mm-hmm. who signed the armistice with the French in 1918, the French and the British. So they were all in... It's a very famous scene from German history uh, where there are two train carriages in, outside of Paris, 80 kilometers north of Paris. And the French and the Germans were... They were each in their train carriage, and they'd meet in the French one and eventually sign the armistice. And the German army... Had sent, had said, "Oh, we need a politician to do this," because they they didn't want to. They knew if they went, it would look like they'd give up. You know, they didn't want they not They wanted someone to blame, and that's exactly what they did afterwards. The army, basically the military, said, "Oh, we were betrayed by the politicians. Um, they sold us out. We actually would have won the war if we had just continued." Uh, the French were at the brink of defeat, and this politician, but politics in general, they they, they betrayed us. And Daniel Bruth's character is actually killed two years later. I mean, Matthias Erzberger was killed in 1922, long after the movie ends, uh, by nationalists. Uh, he's assassinated. And so, you know, I wanted, with the, by including these scenes, and they're not in the book, by the way, I wanted to shed a light on what was yet to come, so that this is just... This big conflict, you know, where 18, almost 18, 17 to 18 million people died, you know, within four years without gaining any land. It's ridiculous. They ran 200 meters right and then they retreated 200 meters for four years, went just back, forth, back, forth. And in the course of that, 17 million people died. But the horror of it, that this was just the beginning, it was much worse. And the German army or the nationalists used, this legend, this saying, oh, this guy stabbed us in the back. They sold us out. They used this legend by uh, to to basically legitimize, to find a, a legitimatization for themselves for, for the second world war. So this is really just the beginning of a much bigger horror. And that's why those scenes are in the film.
1: It almost seems like it's just like within our nature to destroy I, instead of create. And live in peace and harmony. I, I, I will never understand it. Even when politicians act within our best interests, like you said, there's then still that deep-rooted anger and sense of hatred that is permeating its way through. And it might take years to ramp up, but it's always there to some degree or another. And I think in ways that that's what makes All Quiet on the Western Front still a very cautionary uh, film for us today uh, no matter what country you're a part of, um, I, I think that that is something that we all have to contend with all the time is how do we keep that evil at bay and still try to live in peace if we can.
2: So, Absolutely. Um, Ultimately, I'm optimist, though, and I hope that we can find a way to all live uh, together peacefully.
1: Is that why the final shot of the film is not focusing on Paul's death, but on the landscape uh, as beautiful and striking as it is. I'm, I'm curious to know why that was the final shot of the film, if you don't mind me asking.
2: It, it's, a, it's a closure to the beginning. It's a full circle. Uh, but it's also, it's, I don't find it, I, in that case, it's not really, I mean, there's nothing optimistic about all quite on the Western Front, mm-hmm. especially since it went on to be worse, our history. But it, it's more like, a, a, I almost find it a sor- it's, it's sorrowful. To see that, you know, what have we been doing to, to our land, our people, and this is what we're losing, you know, and this is what we destroyed. So to, to me, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be at least really hopeful. It was supposed to create almost a feeling of uh, utter devastation that this is, you know, it could be so easy, but we are actually making it very hard for ourselves. That's what I mean in my in my gut. This is why I put the. If I had to explain it, I probably there's probably no rational reason, but somehow there. Yeah, and now you're asking me for an interpretation. This is mine, you know. You can, but you can take the positive thing out of
1: it. Hey, but, it's what we bring to it at the end of the day. Yeah. So, exactly. um, I'm I'm glad that the film is resonating. Um, I cannot wait for more people to see it. I think it's one of the most awe-inspiring uh, technical achievements of the year. And I I could go on and on about talking to you about the visual effects and then also the makeup, the production design. There's so much to talk about with this film, but I think it's best that people experience it, whether it's in a theater or if they're watching it at home on Netflix, that they at least take the time to experience it, because that is what it is. It's an overwhelming experience. So I thank you very much, Edward, for this, because this was uh, a great interview, a great film. And uh, I can't wait to talk to you again later this evening.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, Matt. I can't wait to share the film with a wide audience. Absolutely. You You
1: have a good rest of your day.
2: You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer and director for the new film, All Quiet on the Western Front, here on the next Best Picture podcast. All Quiet on the Western Front is currently streaming on Netflix and is up for your consideration for Best International Feature and all other eligible categories.